0: So if you love the show, please donate. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. I've put together an episode filled with some of my favorite reveals from interviews I've done, and I think you're going to love it. So, here we go. Here's the first one.
1: AOK. AOK.
0: As a child of a single working mother growing up in New York City, Laura Linney was on her own a lot. In this anecdote about her childhood, Laura tells us the story of a very unlikely babysitter who was always looking out for her.
2: So I was a latchkey kid, you know, and there were many of us during that time. It was not unusual for kids to be, you know, out and in hanging out in Central Park after school and getting to school by yourself. What part of the city 64th between first and York? Okay. Near, near the hospital. It was a different type of New York where m- most stores were privately owned. There were small businesses everywhere and they knew the neighborhood. like everyone knew that there was this nurse who had this kid and and they all sort of made sure I was okay and how you doing and Rocky Graziano lived in my building, which was a riot. So, and he was always like, you
3: know, anybody bothers you, you tell me Uncle
0: Rocky, he will come and give him a one or two.
2: <laughs> and he dated, he dated twins, which I loved. Were they identical? Yeah, they were identical twins with like long blonde hair and they wore cowboy hats. And he would put one hand in one back pocket and one in the other and sort of, you know, manage them up and down the street. It was oh hysterical. But I loved him. He was yes. very, very sweet to me. Uncle Rocky. He was Uncle Rocky. You know, and I felt, consequently, I felt very protected. Yeah. But, you know, the neighborhood sort of looked out for me.
0: On January 25, 1996, at the young age of 35, Jonathan Larson, the playwright and composer of the international hit musical Rent, was found dead in his New York City apartment. Earlier that evening, the cast of Rent had performed the final dress rehearsal to an ecstatic audience. Jonathan didn't live to see what quickly became the Broadway phenomenon of his musical, but rent star, Anthony Rapp, was on the podcast, and he told me the story of his last night with Jonathan Larson. Here it is.
5: December 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, from here on in I shoot without a script. See if anything comes of it instead of my old shit.
6: We were doing it at the New York Theatre Workshop. Okay. He was alive for the dress rehearsal, Right, the invited dress rehearsal. Our, our mutual friend, John Benjamin Hickey. I'll never forget his reaction after the show. He ran up to me and he went, you guys are all fucking incredible. I wanted to fuck each and every one of you. <laughs>
0: That's the highest praise. I know. What higher praise is there? Especially it from John like, Benjamin I Hickey. Wow. Like...
6: Yeah, no, Jonathan was very much alive for the dress rehearsal. I mean, it was... It was an amazing. I mean, I've been a part of some really, you know, Six Degrees of Separation was a big deal. Yep, I had a small part in it. Yes, it was yes. a very big deal. But yes. I can remember the dress rehearsal for Six Degrees of Separation. We were playing the Mitzi House, which in Lincoln Center is the small theater downstairs, and the Beaumont is the Broadway theater upstairs, which was playing Some Americans Abroad, which is a pretty quiet play. Right. The laughter and cheering from Six Degrees of Separation went through. The ceiling, so that the actors on stage of Some Americans Abroad were hearing it. It was that electric. So that was my closest sort of touchstone. And then Six Six right. Threes went on to be this huge success. The Rent dress rehearsal was like that. And Jonathan was surrounded by people afterwards. And it wasn't just his friends, I promise you. It no, was like, he had
0: it, though. He got yeah, to experience yes. that.
6: So people glommed on him, wanted to talk to him. You know, my agent. Tears in her eyes, shaking. You know, so... That happened. And the New York Times had sent Anthony Tomasini. He was a, at the... T- I don't know what his job is currently still, but he was writing for, the, for like the classical music. Right. Stuff. And it was the 100th anniversary of La Boheme.
0: Right. So perfect. Coincided. Perfect story. So he's yeah. like,
6: oh, I should go check out this yeah. East Village adaptation. So he just happened to be there. He wasn't going to... He wasn't reviewing it, you know, just to have included in his piece. Mm-hmm. He was so struck by what he'd seen that he asked Jonathan to sit for an on-the-spot interview. So, you know, Jonathan, 35 years old, had been plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. Nothing had happened and mm-hmm. was on the verge. And he knew, you know, one of the things that's been the 20th anniversary this year. And so like his old friend, Victoria Leacock, has been sharing some stories. And yeah. The other day she posted something about Facebook because people were talking about like the different perceptions of how much can we ever can we know? How much he did know or didn't know of what was to come and she was like no absolutely he knew that he that he, he had a hit again you never know for sure but he was so confident i mean that brings me some comfort so the last time i saw him was through the box office window which was the only quiet place in the little new york theater workshop play. that was the only place to go was where he was doing his interview with anthony Tomasini. he knew enough about everything to know that an interview with the new york times is a big deal so i saw him and of course i was going to see him the next day and then he went home afterwards and he put on a kettle on the stove to make some tea and he dropped dead on his kitchen floor. And his and his roommate came home in the middle of the night and found him.
7: 525,600 minutes 525,000 moments oh dear.
1: 525,
0: My next guest, Griffin Dunn, is going to share a story with you. He had just gotten to New York City. I think on the day this story happened, he was about to start acting class with the renowned Uta Hagen, acting teacher to many greats. And he had on this really great coat and he walked into a supermarket and he was really surprised to find that he could fit as many things into his coat pocket as he could into a shopping cart. And so he did, and this turned out to be not such a great idea. Here's
8: Griffin. I went to the neighborhood playhouse and um, my first week there, before I went to the class, I went to the A and P across the street, Uh supermarket, and I went to just get it like a few things. And I had an enormous coat. And um, one of the things was Cheese Whiz. I I don't know. Delicious.
0: What Delicious. do you mean you don't know? If they had Triscuits, that's the best day well, ever.
8: So I loaded up, and yeah. I realized my pockets were so big. I mm-hmm. thought, why did I? Why am I paying for this? Crazy. Look how look at these pockets, and look how few items. These <sighs> it are. caught the attention of the security guard, mm-hmm. who informed the New York City police, and so I was arrested, and led by, in handcuffs, in front of the neighborhood playhouse. <laughs> first year student and they're taking the back of my head and putting it under the door and I've still got my big coat on and I'm taken to you know the tombs oh my god and I go from cell to cell to cell you know waiting for night court I was sure. there at 7 in the morning we're now like 3 in the morning I've earned the nomenclature the cheese whiz kid <laughs> The other inmates found it hilarious of that, she, that I took cheese Whiz.
0: Because the other inmate was like, killed seven people well, you know, on my way.
8: <laughs> my last... S- uh, son of w- Sam. That yeah, was the other that guy. That was the, right, right guy.
0: He <laughs> was so sweet.
8: Um, Misunderstood. Uh, absolutely. Um, he brought his own hot plate. <laughs> um, he, uh, but anyway, actually, does anyone have a Ritz cracker? Oh no. Terri- uh, well, okay. I, you know, we were. I was going to go. We were all going to go to Rikers if the judge didn't get me. And Rikers, I was not looking forward to. It was all fun and games until we had to go to Rikers. And I'm in the final cell before I finally get to the judge. It's taken all day, and I'm in a cell with. I'm 18. These two kids are 17. The way I know that is they're reading the latest edition of the New York Post, of which they're on the cover for killing a Columbia student.
0: You've got to be kidding. And they're looking
8: at their picture. I look, at, look at how my... Yeah, I'm not so sure. And they're like a couple of actors, you know, oh complaining about their headshot. And then the, a cop comes in and goes, Oh, we can only take one of you. That's my English, Irish accent. Okay. He wasn't uh, old old O'Reilly. And he said, we can only take one of you. Uh, we'll take the youngest one here. And I said, I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: the... Well, you're the only non murderer. And I said, I'm
8: Irish. I'm Irish. I'm Irish, just like you.
0: <laughs> I'm Griffin.
8: I'm even... <laughs> <laughs> Paddy.
0: <laughs> 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 my teeny Irish accent is fantastic. <laughs> so I'll take you, meaning you get to see the judge.
8: Oh, I get to see the right? judge. Right? That's judge what it goes, meant. Why is this in my courtroom? He brings the security guard to the bench.
0: I'm picturing and goes, Harry Anderson from like the sitcom Night Court. <laughs> yeah. Quar- like first of all, give me that trisket. Bring that here, young man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bring that, cheese Jesus. <laughs>
8: all, it was a total sitcom. Mm-hmm. And all instead of yelling at me, he yelled at the security guard for arresting me. And then he was shamefaced and I had to take a subway back and we were the only two on the platform at the end of
0: You and the Earl. <laughs> You're like, I'm really sorry about the cheese waste. Really, yeah. So you don't have a record
8: from that. I've off, I, I've wanted to look for it, but I can't find it. But you I wanted- can
0: travel freely between countries. You're not like Roman Polanski. No, like exactly. you're allowed back.
8: No. You're allowed I, back I'll,
0: in when you leave.
8: I, I, absolutely. Gee, Officer Grupky, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquent, once we're misunderstood. Deep down inside as there is good. There is good.
0: So my friend Cynthia Nixon is an only child. And coincidentally, both of her parents were also only children. And she grew up in New York City. Her parents were pretty bohemian. And there was this expectation, as she describes it, that she would always fit into their very adult world. And so she very quickly learned how to be an adult. So here she is filling me in on life in the Nixon household.
3: I feel like this is a segue into an important part of me, right? Which is that my mother had me late, late for the time that she was living in the 60s. She was 36 when she had me. I was her only child. She wasn't planning on having children. I'm an only child, and she was an only child, mm. and my father was an only child. You know, there was not a lot of um, you know, my childhood that was kid stuff. There was a lot of like, you're five now. Let's go see Stacy Keach and Hamlet. You know, there was a lot of 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 movies and plays. Mm. And Partly maybe because I was way too young for right, these things that right. I was seeing, but also because I think it was what my mother loved to do, we would go. But that was what we had to talk about. Right. We didn't talk about our feelings. No, We didn't talk about our, my imaginary friends. We talked about both of our imaginary people that we'd seen up on stage. Because my parents were old and because they had me, like, my mother was 36, my dad was 44, which at the time to have a child, like, right. my mother would clip articles out of the paper about Cary Grant to be like, he's old and he's a dad and look how happy he is. Right.
8: Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything they say?
0: Now, quite the reverse of being an only child is my husband, Dominic Famosa's story, where Dominic is one of 10 children, nine out of 10, actually, and he's also a twin. And here he tells us what it was like growing up in a house with that many kids and only one refrigerator.
7: You know, I get asked about my big family, and I I always say it's like I didn't think twice about it. I mean, it didn't really occur to me that this was totally strange. I mean, obviously, most kids I knew did not have anywhere near as many siblings as I did. But, you know, I, I had this healthy sense as a child that whatever I did, whatever my parents were doing, was like the thing that should be done. That's you nice. Know? Yeah, it was. It was good.
0: Do you feel like it made you feel special?
7: You know, because I had so many older siblings— my name carried a certain, you know, cachet as it were as I went through the school system. Uh, so that was kind of cool because most of my siblings I think had made a good impression on most teachers before I got there. So, so you kind of start the day with, you know, with a good check mark already mm-hmm. in there.
0: When you share the same last name as nine other people in a community, how do you get well, noticed for being an individual?
7: I was a little different in that I was very into sports and I was, uh, You know, I, I, sports was something that I, at my level at that, at that school, I, I excelled at. So Mm -hmm. I was the starting quarterback. I was this, you know, one of the starting pitchers on the baseball team. I was the starting point guard on the basketball team. So, so that was one way to sort of, you know, create an identity, you know, of, of my own. But, you know, getting back to this idea, I just, I had a very healthy sense of, uh, of security and and I remember um which which I think looking back was was sort of kind of unwarranted but why my dad I think you know it, it, there was a lot of pressure to raise 10 children and uh I'm sure it was stressful but I never uh, you weren't aware a, of that. well not as a young person for sure and and uh, things would happen where like things would break down in our in our house or like I remember uh we had a blacktop driveway that was crumbling and you know, my friends would be like, when are you guys going to, you know, get this paved over? And I'd be like, oh, no, we like it this way. <laughs> this is a choice. You know, it's, Those aren't weeds.
0: That's know, a garden. Or
7: like My friends would come over and open the refrigerator because they couldn't believe that uh, my father had bought more than one gallon of milk at a time. And like they would play a game before they opened it where they like they would bet how many gallons are going to be in the fridge when they open it. And I think the record was five gallons of milk.
0: Continuing now with some of my favorite reveals from Little Known Facts is Molly Ringwald. Molly grew up with a blind father, but that never seemed unusual to her. It was more unusual that he was a jazz musician who worked completely different hours than most of her friends' dads. So listen as Molly describes her take on growing up with her jazz musician dad. A moment where you realize like, oh, my dad isn't like other dads, where you had an understanding that
9: he was special in all of these ways? To me, he was always special because he was just so different from everyone else. And it really the the blindness was, I would say, a little bit low on the list. You know, he was he was a musician. Um, You know, it was the 70s. He had a big bushy beard. I've never actually seen my father without a beard. He grew a goatee when he was about 15 so he could uh, work in clubs. Uh He had dark hair. I mean, people, he was very striking to look at. And I remember my friends sometimes would be scared of him at first because he looked so different than all the dads looked in the 70s, you know. And also he kept different hours. Um, You know, he didn't wake up and go to work like all the other dads did you know he slept late and then he would pretty much work all night in clubs and you know that's how he supported the family was you know as a working musician and also he had a he had a different sense of humor my dad has a little bit of a subversive sense of humor and he just always seemed very confident it seemed to me that he could do anything he wanted to do you know he would he would get up on the roof and fix the antenna or he would you know he would put shelves together and you know he's better at giving directions than than anyone else and you know he did all of the the scheduling in the house because my mom hates to talk on the phone and you know he there was just never it was never really an issue Um, and of course I never grew up with a different dad so I didn't really have much to compare it to Catherine
0: Irby, who is just the most magnificent actress who many people know from her years on Law & Order Criminal Intent, although her film and theater career is pretty incredible as well. But she tells a very personal and intimate story on the podcast about a huge thing that happened to her when she was in high school. And this is her telling me about the decision to leave high school before it was done. So here's Catherine and I really want to thank her for sharing this. The response to this story has been extraordinary. It is incredibly inspiring, and I'm sure you will find it as such.
1: I just hit my teenage years and was uh, found myself to be deeply unhappy. Okay. And um, really angry and... I felt then that I had been this good little girl right. my whole life. did it all right. Life. I did it all right. I had this smile on my face, and I only—I ne- I didn't feel anything. You know, it was all my head, mm. really. I wasn't really connected from the neck down. And there was also something really romantic about suffering yes. <laughs> and suffering for love. And I had these weird ideas like that. I really it was just finding myself unhappy mm-hmm. and I I dis, I kind of took a rebellious turn and I was tired of pleasing my parents and really tired of the grind of being a good student and I actively sought out a group of uh, friends that were kind of in the same path mm. and we all went down the drain together pretty much.
0: So what grade was this when you sort of checked out of traditional school?
1: Um my junior year mm-hmm. of high school I dropped out. And you know, I don't talk about it a lot because I feel like it brings it it's it's a hard thing to talk about. Of course. Um it's painful I think for my parents. You know, I felt a lot of shame about it. Um but more and more, I feel like it might help people for Absolutely. me to talk about it. I mean, I was really lucky. You know, I got into cars with people who were drunk and mm-hmm. we crashed. And, you know, I I probably shouldn't be here given the odds. But I've always sort of felt like I had a guardian angel or some kind of, you know, spirit in me that was going to survive and i was really lucky i mean my parents cared deeply about me so i i dropped out of school i left home i lived in in my best friends with my best friends family And it was when I was living with my best friend's family um, that I dropped out, and my parents saw that as a real warning sign. Mm -hmm. And we had found this alternative high school that was in western Massachusetts called the Desisto at Stockbridge School, which was basically a therapeutic community. And they mortgaged their house, and they sent me to this school. And initially, it was kind of against my will. I had I had a schedule that I wanted to do it on. It was certainly right. that I wasn't going to go during the summer. I was, you know, <laughs> no, no, certainly not with Crystal not. Lake there, it, with exactly. You. <laughs> and Nantasket Beach. I had plans, and they hilarious thwarted. Yeah, they were thwarted. Plan thwarters. Mm, plan. <laughs> exactly. I knew it. Exactly. And so I went to the school, and and there were you know, my people.
0: A
6: high five.
0: When Matty Broderick was starting out, he was very well known very quickly for being in this trilogy of Neil Simon plays on Broadway. One of the plays did a national tour either before or after it came to Broadway. I can't remember, but this one was called Brighton Beach Memoirs. And it was an autobiographical play. And Matthew basically plays Neil Simon in these plays. And they were all very much focused on what it was like to grow up as Neil Simon in Brooklyn. And one night in the story that Matthew shared with me, he talks about one of the best onstage pranks that ever happened. And this is between him and an actor named Tim Busfield. And uh all right i'll i'll let matthew tell it
5: i have a secret desire hiding deep
8: in my soul it sets my heart of fire
5: to see me in this role tim busfield uh was a 30-something was something of fame. 30-something fame and a very good director too and a great fellow he was my understudy as it happened in uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs. We were very young. We were in um, at, in San Francisco and uh, at Fisherman's Wharf, like a, this touristy kind of area. And there was some kind of joke shop. And I bought a little package of of, gar- of candy that was tasted of garlic. It starts out good. I think it was gum or a sucker. And it's hilarious because the person thinks it's really good. And they have it for a while and then it tastes really bad. And so it's really funny. And um, I gave a piece to Tim and I was like, it's gonna taste funny, but if you stick with it, you know, it's gonna, believe me, it's worth it. This is the most delicious thing I've ever had. And I gave it to him and he really sucked on it. And really, you know, it worked. It looked just like the picture that the, that the candy came in, like the guy slapping his forehead and going, garlic, you know, it's awful. And it all worked perfectly, and I was so happy with my joke. A
0: really good prank.
5: My prank, yes. And then uh, that night in the show, I had a very long piece of this. I would read from my journal, and there was one very long, like, you know, single-spaced page thing that I would read, and I had it in my actual journal because I thought, why would I learn that? I should just read it. So I opened to the page to read this little monologue, and it's gone. There's just a piece of paper (laughs) over it. (laughs) and written in very big pencil is garlic comma ha exclamation point and i'm in the middle of you know there's there's a 1500 seat theater or something like 1200 and uh, and i see and i look up and in the by the light behind the orchestra i can see Tim Busfield with his red hair laughing under the light and uh, it's horrible <laughs>
0: I remember the day my sisters brought home the album Purple Rain. We listened to it. Our minds were blown and from that moment on, we were Prince fans. And when he passed this year, it was it was devastating. When Kristen Chenoweth came on the show and told me how she first came to know him and become close friends with him, it's To this day, one of the highlights of my time as a podcast host. So I'm so thrilled to get to share with you Kristen's story of the day her manager called and said, hey, what are you doing? Prince wants to meet you. Here's Kristen telling it.
4: I knew him um for a time and he was over the years very encouraging to me mm. and you know even though he was a friend that i didn't see so how did was, you even connect my manager my then manager called me and said prince would like to meet you know invite you to dinner so i think i'm going there thinking i'm having dinner with a group and it's just me and him and all he wanted to do was talk about music at his home yes so you you're like oh Okay. Yes. And you're writing down 433. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um That's so exactly. you <laughs> and I drove up, and there was this huge gate with right. the symbol of Prince when he was not Prince. Oh, the Ankh. Yeah.
0: Uh, yes, <laughs> on the door. Formerly known as Prince, <laughs> that's right? Yes. And then there
4: was a big. St- it was like Little Orphan Annie's mansion, and there was a big staircase with a purple rug, and there was somebody waiting for me to greet me and take me into library. And who, like a butler, like yes, formal, yes, okay. And Miss Chenoweth, and it was so. I'm like, I think I was in a, I remember being in a Gap jacket. I was like, oh, I should have dressed up. Yeah, you
0: should
4: have. Took me. <laughs> <laughs> you you know I should have. And it took me to the library and I wasn't snooping but it's hard not to With Colonel Mustard and a candlestick (laughs) Got it (laughs) Exactly So I'm looking around and I look in and I see that he has a Bible and he has some really other cool books and I thought and he's definitely a spiritual person, and of course we got we got on great. And most
0: of us have not been in that situation, although we have been in libraries of people we don't know, maybe waiting for them to come down. But what's right. the very first moment? Like this is Prince. Do you know what to call him? Even okay. Does he, how does he introduce himself? Okay,
4: Prince. Okay. So I am, there's this long hallway, and it was marble, and I heard. And I got nervouser and nervouser and right. nervouser, and it took forever. It was the longest clicking heels coming down the hallway I'd ever heard. I thought it would never. And he comes in, and he's looking fantastically hot, just how he it's was. Beautiful. He was, and he had his, he had his hair, and his, he had on a white silk suit, and he said, Hi, Kristen. I'm so glad you came. And I went, I am. I, I don't know what to say to you right now. I'm and I think I said, Do I call you prince? What do I and he goes, You call me prince, but you just relax. I just want to tell you how much you've inspired me. I remember when we had salmon, which um I don't eat fish you know, and I just remember hearing my mom's voice go, You choke that salmon down, eat it. You <laughs> tough love. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned, you mentioned the it, tough love. Yeah. Mothers and daughters. <laughs> you eat that. Salmon. That's exactly what <laughs> I'm going to be. I'm going to get you with that salmon. <laughs> and I choked it down, Alana, with my water. <laughs> oh. And then he goes, I want to show you something I just love to watch. And took me down to his movie room and he played Candide, this opera I did for PBS. And he played the aria I sang. And I said, no, no, do, we don't have to watch this. He goes, no, I think it's important when someone inspires you that you admire and you look at their skill. I want you to know that, that this is inspiring to me. And I mean, Really? So you're watching your performance in the opera with him. With Prince, I said, right. "Is Prince showing me me?" What's happening right yeah, now? Yeah, I was like, "No," and then he said, "You want to see my guitars and I, g- uh, guitars?" And I said, "Whoa!" Well, <laughs> I w- said, yes. "Yes, I do." I said, <laughs> well, Yeah, thank you." Who <laughs> 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 are you all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All of a sudden, I've become <laughs> you're Loretta Lynn. I've, I've become Christy Dawn. Is what happened. <laughs> you were. Would you we know go her? Right back. Yes. So we we go down. I'm glad you asked me this. Yeah. So we go down. And we see all these guitars in this other room. I mean, probably 30 on stands. And he said, "Do you want to play one?" I said, "Yeah, I'm terrible." But I picked up a he goes pick up that white one and I picked it up it had a pretty long grip. He goes flip it over and I flipped it over and it was all scratched. I said what happened? He goes that was Elvis's belt. Okay. I'm like if I had a door We're out. <laughs> We're out. <laughs> I, it's very hard not to be intimidated. Yeah. And I said I can't believe you have his guitar and he goes oh I loved him but I'm glad you said you loved him because what an incredible person and musician and I know there's all this cloud of things around his death but I choose to really look at the way he lived and so you stayed friends yeah every once in a while he would say I saw you on this and you're great and another time he'd invited me over after the Emmys one night and he said invite whoever you want he did a three-hour concert just for you and your friends. Yeah, and um, I was like, a- asking people at the Emmys, I know I don't really know you, but <laughs> do you want to come to <laughs> I have a free ticket to his living room. Yeah, and do they're you want like, to come? Yes. And
0: that he played for incredible.
4: three hours.
6: Because
7: I- So
0: there you have it, some of my favorite reveals from Little Known Facts. Hope you enjoyed it. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are Little Known Facts that you know? Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine.